0: Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. BRICS and other developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance on the global stage, while consumption and interconnectedness both increase. Laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Roquefort. And I'm
1: Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world, as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finances, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests.
1: In my reading and discussions with Africa experts and business owners, one thing has been driven home to me more than any other. This will be Africa's century. Africa is a continent with 54 countries and a population of 1.2 billion. That is projected to reach one third of the entire world population by the end of this century. And the median age in Africa is 19.7 years, compared to 38.2 in the US, 38.4 in China, and 42.6 in the EU. Africans throughout the continent, but particularly in sub Saharan Africa, see themselves as young, educated, motivated, and capable. East Africa is home to the East African Community, an intergovernmental organization comprised of six countries in the African Great Lakes region in Eastern Africa. Burundi, Kenya, Rwanda, South Sudan, Tanzania, and Uganda. Together, these countries are ranked the fourth strongest GDP in Africa behind Nigeria, South Africa, and Egypt. Their proximity to the Middle East and Asia mean that these largely coastal East African nations are poised to continue to lead Africa's economic development in the coming decades. Today, we are joined by our guest, John Brittell, the managing partner of Imani Partners, a boutique corporate advisory firm offering bespoke professional services to family firms, corporates, and high-net-worth individuals. John oversees all client and investor relationships and is the principal on all transactions for the Uganda market. In his current role, he is well-networked within the region, especially amongst the diplomatic community, foreign multinational corporations, local corporations, family-owned businesses, and local government. Prior to Amani Partners, John worked with OPIC now the Development Finance Corporation, and with USAID's Development Credit Authority. John, thank you for
2: being with us today. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: John, welcome to the show. Um, Why don't we kick things off by having you tell us about yourself, your work, and how is it that you ended up in Uganda, please?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm originally from San Francisco, California. Studied uh, at UC Davis, economics and statistics. That was in '99. Um, and started a career actually fundraising in NGOs, uh, and then took a bit of a turn and and transitioned to Washington, D.C., and started fundraising for a large uh, U.S. government broadcasting media company. Uh, And during that time in D.C., I was exposed to so many international uh, embassies and communities, um, and I ended up volunteering for some NGOs that were working in Africa. So that was around 2003, Um, Was really interested in in fundraising for them. I did so. And then eventually in 2005 came to to Uganda uh, in East Africa uh, to do some more work for the same uh, NGO we were were fundraising for. Um, So I returned to D.C. in 2010 uh, and did my master's, my MBA at GW, George Washington University. School of Business, and also did a duel with the Elliott School of International Affairs, where I did an, a, a degree in international uh, policy, economic policy. And that's actually where I, where I met Jonathan, uh, full disclosure. Um, and it was around that time finishing that uh, degree, those degrees, where coming back, I wanted to re-enter in the private sector uh, and knew right away that there was a huge gap in professional Uh, advisory services, uh, services around uh, capital raising, uh, company valuation, um, all the technical side of finance when it comes to uh, dealing with capital uh, in the local market. And so our thesis starting and coming into this this space was uh, opening up a firm that could actually deliver those services at a professional level um, uh, to clients on the ground in East Africa. Uh, of course, we learned very quickly, and this is probably uh, uh, further on in the, in the discussion we can get into uh, that you know, professional services aren't uh, are valued in a different way, and getting folks to pay for that was was really is really a challenge. So I think that's something that we can talk about further. Um, but in essence, that information, asymmetry uh, and the thesis of coming here to do professional provide professional services uh, is still very valid, and uh, looking forward to, to seeing how we can talk about it more. So that's how I got here to, to East Africa.
1: So, John, in the context of business, East Africa is uh, somewhat of an economic unit. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why that is?
2: Absolutely. Uh, I think it's important to understand the geographic uh, dimensions of East Africa uh, under the EAC, which is the uh, regional bloc, uh, very similar to COMESA, which is the southern and in, in eastern African bloc. Uh, then you have SADC, which is the, the South African bloc, um, and ECOWAS is in the, in the west of Africa. Um, for East Africa, we define it a little bit differently. We don't define it the way the EAC does. Uh, we su- we suggest that Eastern Africa is actually all the way from Djibouti, Eritrea, and Ethiopia on the far north, all the way down to Tanzania in the south. Uh, to the west, you have Kenya and Somalia, and then to uh, I'm sorry, that's to the east, and then to the west, you have uh, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. Um, I would say also that Eastern DRC, because of a lot of the trade flows and the traffic and the capital flows um, you you see that moving between Uganda and Kenya um, and so that could arguably be included and we define it in that way as well um, but but you're right the EAC does cover the main six countries but I believe if you but the EAC also doesn't cover Ethiopia which is a huge market um, so we define it a little bit differently geographically I think from um, what to understand east africa it's it's best to to take a look at the entire continent and then you kind of compare so if you look at the whole continent when we say uh, sub-saharan africa is the whole continent we discount the northern african states uh, but in sub-saharan africa you're looking at about a 1.7 trillion dollar uh, market uh, global economy it's a mere two percent of total gdp of global gdp so it's a very small output and of course that's also a function of what's formerly calculated and we know that a large majority of uh, businesses uh, are informal in the African markets, Sub-Saharan Africa. So you could argue that's probably three or four times higher if you were to count uh, everything. Um, but overall there's been double-digit growth in the first uh, uh, decade of the 21st century uh, and then it dropped down to just under uh, double digits in the second half. Uh, we're closer to, to 3% uh, now in the second decade. Inflation is still high. It's close to 10% um, uh, in this region. And of course, across the board, all currencies in all countries have been depreciating against the dollar for the last 20 years. Um, so that's something uh, to kind of keep in mind as, as we talk about doing business here in East Africa or in Africa. For East Africa in particular, uh, when we look at it as a block uh, that I had mentioned, um, it's approximately around 375 million people. Uh, all of Africa is about 1.2. You're looking at GDP in just our region uh, of about 330, 340 million, uh, I'm sorry, 340 billion dollars. So it's a fairly small market, uh, but it captures around 20 percent of of the total GDP of the entire continent. Uh, Growth is somewhere closer to 6 percent versus 3 percent for the rest of the continent. So it's a much faster growing region uh, economically than than the other places. Um, so, it's important uh, to keep in mind. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind uh, uh, for East Africa are the economic trends. I think there's uh, four that are really important for East Africa. Um, you've got the demographic uh, dividend, which of course, uh, in, in all of uh, the world, this is the only place where the dependency ratio is actually decreasing. You're going to have you're having much more um, uh, people entering the workforce. And of course, that's a function of the middle class. Uh, and people making uh, more than $11 a day. Uh, and that's the fastest growing segment, I think, of, of, of people in Africa, other than those that are making uh, less than $1. twenty-five a day. Um, so the middle class is growing. Obviously, there's a new policy, which is CAFTA, which is the Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is trying to link all African markets under one free trade zone. Uh, we also have uh, the human capital component. So these four trends, the uh, demographic dividend, the middle class, the, the CAPTA policy, the Intercontinental Trade Agreement, and also the human capital are kind of the biggest issues that I think that are facing uh, the region just because uh, human capital is um, so uh, well needed in this area. There's a lot of labor that's here, but it needs to be trained. Um, so there's an opportunity there.
0: John, from the point of view of foreign businesses, that might be looking with interest at East Africa, what would be the key industries and sectors where opportunities might be present for for these businesses?
2: That's a good question. The the national governments put forward national plans every year and they target and they they, uh, set uh, specific uh, industry and sector targets uh, for each of their plans, which is kind of a forward-looking indicator for investors coming in saying this is where our priorities are. If you look at those national plans and, and just take what's cross-cutting across each of the, the, the nations, each of the countries here, uh, what's cross-cutting are things like manufacturing, uh, and that's everything from textiles to um, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals. Uh, you also have the ICT and the innovation industry, which is big, um, hospitality and tourism, uh, real estate and construction, and then energy, uh, which is production in particular. That's what's uh, cutting across all the national plans, uh, which is pretty straightforward. When you look at it from a local perspective, if you look at uh, what we're looking at, and we're trying to find companies uh, to invest in, we're trying to find uh, good opportunities for other investors who are looking to, to place capital in the market. We're seeing things uh, a little bit differently. Uh, we see uh, the industries and sectors such as infrastructure, and that could include water in particular, bridges. Um, Transport, in particular, which people aren't looking at, and that's not including roads. Uh, Energy distribution and, of course, energy transmission. These are places where capital typically uh, is needed uh, in the local market, and we like to see going there. I would also add to that uh, financial services. uh, Mining, obviously, is still key. Uh, Telecommunications uh, is a good earner in this market uh, due to the multiples. Uh, education, clearly, as I was mentioning uh, earlier with uh, human capital. Um, healthcare care is a big play. And then renewables, uh, whether you're talking about uh, geothermal or even solar. So th- these areas, I think, are really exciting and, and places where capital would, would, would really flow well um, and then hit a lot of the social impact metrics that uh, governments are trying to, to reach with their national plans uh, in addition to what they're putting forward.
1: John, when we're talking about doing business with Africa, I think... A lot of us from the outside tend to want to simplify it just so we can understand because Africa is so big and so culturally diverse. Can you talk a little bit about the cultural differences to keep in mind as companies are looking at Africa in general and and East Africa in particular?
2: Yeah, it's important to understand that, you know, doing business in in sub-Saharan Africa is very different than doing business in the West, uh, whether it's Europe or the United States. Um, There are longer standing ties and, and, Legacy ties with Europe, as opposed to the states, and a lot of the links to East Africa, in particular to the, to say, the United States, um, are very weak, and that's typically just because of the trade flows and who the p- typical partners are uh, in the region, which we can get into get into later. Um, but in doing business here, it's really important uh, for for uh, businesses who are entering the market to understand that. Um, You can look at the entry, which is a lot of the way that American firms are looking at this. The entry can be looked at as East Africa as a market where you're trying to offload your product, which is one way to look at it. And the other way to look at it is if you want to make an actual investment here. And so a lot of American corporates and a lot of other corporates uh, uh, from the West look at this as a market, not as an investment. So that's something that's really important to consider and, and think about. In addition to the uh, market uh, versus investment uh, conversation, uh, it's also important to understand that, you know, in getting new business and doing business here, uh, there needs to be a conversation on what commissions means versus what bribes mean. Uh, And so oftentimes doing business here means that there are uh, those types of payments that are made, which go against most uh, uh, either FATCA or I'm sorry, uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or UK Bribery Act. Um, in terms of how how West the West does business versus how uh, African states do business and even how other countries do business, say China or India. Or India. So that's really important to, to make a distinction on and, and, and to understand for US businesses entering this market. Um, just to, to name a few other cultural differences, I think you've got a different form of decision-making, much slower, much more process-oriented. Um, relationships are really key here. Uh, going much farther and doing business in person, obviously, uh, as opposed to say online, even though we may have a new world uh, after the COVID uh, uh, virus. Um, But that's the reality here on the ground and might shift, but historically uh, doing business here is about meeting face-to-face with clients, uh, not doing it over the phone or not doing it on video or or via email. Um, It's important to understand that most firms have uh, more than one set of books. I think it's very common in this market. Um, there's typically no CFOs uh, you know, associated with these firms. You've got a lot of family-owned businesses that are on the market. Uh, there's a huge Indian influence uh, that plays uh, to, the, to the firms here. Um, there is a low level of talent uh, in general, and you typically need to import your talent if you're looking at management. Um, and most of the forms of doing business uh, are quite informal and so even though there's a lot of formality and regulation that you'd follow say in the states and more regulated markets that regulation is quite lax in this market even though there are shifts uh, obviously towards a more regulated market Um, and that being said uh, amongst all that i think the the bigger one maybe less so cultural and maybe possibly cultural is that there are significant number of brokers and intermediaries middlemen uh, in this trading market and so there's that excess competition that exists uh, in the region these are some of the areas that are that make East Africa um, rather unique and also uh, important to understand from a cultural difference
0: thanks John that that last point is really interesting uh, at the moment uh, our firm is working with many clients who are desperately trying to import um, protection equipment and other uh, goods related to the to the fight against coronavirus, and we we see that cultural difference. Let's say between the your typical American company who would rather be dealing with the manufacturer directly, and then uh, on the other side of the equation, you have uh, in China also a very strong culture of intermediaries and middlemen, and, and in fact. Um, it appears that the government in China prefers uh, for, for, for that to be to be the case. So you, you, it's interesting to, to, to see the, how that plays out. But getting back to East Africa, um, could you please tell us what, what are, who are the main trading partners of the region?
2: As I was saying earlier, a lot of the trade connections with the West, say the United States, are, are much weaker. Um, there's a there's a stronger connection, obviously, with uh, the EU just because of the historic ties. Um, and then the, the trade partners uh, that typically work on this side of the continent are typically the Indians, um, clearly the Chinese within the last uh, 20 years or so, um, and, then, and also more recently with the Middle East in UAE and, and uh, in Dubai are the trading partners. But the, in terms of volume and the bulk, uh, most trade actually happens interregionally, meaning within the continent. And so it may seem like a little surprise, but when you look at the volumes, uh, most trade does actually happen between uh, South Sudan, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. It's all inter and in Ethiopia and it's all interregional regional trade. Um, and then some over into Kamesa, which is a Southern African market. So um, it's really interesting to see how that um, shifts uh, uh, sort of policy on this side uh, and also uh, speaks to the strength of how policy is moving from a a local sourcing or a local conversation, uh, which is really important, I think, for outside firms to keep in mind uh, as they enter. Um, so, in addition to the, to the Chinese and India, um, South Africa is a huge, huge market for um, uh, for the East Africa. I mean, you have a lot of South African firms that are in this area, um, uh, and I think if you look at it from uh, the perspective of understanding how to do business here and from a trade perspective, it's important to understand, again, the currencies. I want to bring that up again just because it's all currencies depreciating. Um, and understanding the local market is really varying from uh, country to country. Um, and then distribution is a big piece of this um, and understanding that if you are going to be doing business here, whatever, whoever, whichever partner decides to do business here, Um, How you distribute and move that product in this market really is important. And you see a lot of homegrown solutions to this, uh, but rarely do you see uh, larger distributors from the outside coming in and and, and figuring out the market and being able to distribute uh, in the same way that the local homegrown solutions are. And oftentimes it's important to to work into the models because firms actually have to build that out uh, on their own. And using a third party doesn't always uh, offer them uh, what they're looking for.
1: John, you know that Fred and I are China watchers. We've been dealing with China for decades now, and we love getting perspectives from the outside on, on the Chinese activities. Uh, can you comment for a minute about what you're seeing uh, and what's the, what's the reception in Uganda and East Africa to the Chinese influence that's been around for the last couple of decades, as you said, since China joined the WTO?
2: Yeah, China is a significant player here in East Africa. Um, They are a part of the infrastructure development here. They are a part of the concessional loans that are coming through. Um, They are a part of the labor force now with their employees and and personnel coming uh, to work on these projects with them uh, when the money comes. Um, And they're even part of the social fabric. So you see uh, in the recent covid Um, case when a lot of companies were putting forward their corporate social responsibility um, i would say 20 to 25 percent of the total came from chinese firms so there's significant players uh, in this market and they're looking at themselves as um, you know part of the community uh, part of this environment Uh, We also have Chinese clients, and we've known that uh, with these uh, guys, they're interested in uh, being here for the long term. Um, So you see them working in markets and being a part of uh, East Africa, um, maybe in more of a form of an investment as opposed to looking at it purely as a market. And I think that's important to understand. So maybe the first one, two, even three years of entering the market, um, they're okay with losses. Uh, whereas if you looked at a Western firm, they'd probably you know, shriek at the sound of that. They'd probably say, well, what, what would be the point? Uh, we've also seen other uh, avenues where you see folks that are making uh, plenty of money here from a local perspective, but from a multinational perspective, it's just not enough. Um, so you have differing, differing views on that. But China uh, as a whole, uh, when you look at it, they are here. And there are some things to keep, you know, to keep an eye on. Um, there have been a number of um, unsavory funds that have come onto the market offering capital, but which have been um, fraudulent. And there are, is a lot of fraudulent activity. But from a trade perspective, there's a lot of trade that happens between China and, and, and East Africa. And if you look at a lot of the building and construction and the way people are building homes here, many, many, many families actually travel to China, pick their construction material, put it in a container and ship it right back and it's it's a very popular thing to do and a lot of families do it here Um, and it's cheap of course so there's there are really strong ties here and obviously that's on the on the business side on the political side um, the chambers are here fully set up the confucius institutes are set up um, and they've got hotels and full communities of of chinese uh, in these markets um, so they're very much a part of East Africa at this point. It's fascinating. Thank you.
1: Now, if we're looking at uh, East Africa from a microeconomic view, can you talk about some s- specific qualities that define f- companies and firms in East Africa?
2: Yeah, this is really interesting um, when you compare w- what firms uh, are like uh, in, in in other markets outside of Africa, and you compare them to to East Africa, in particular, and I'll speak to the East African experience since that's where we are. You know, one of the the most important things for most firms uh, is governance and making sure that governance is is one instituted uh, from a board, from a shareholder to a board to a to a management perspective and operator. Um, and oftentimes, what you see in these markets are that those are typically uh, intertwined into literally one individual, um, and so you don't have that arm's length that that maybe most of the Western world is used to operating under. And that's the same case when you think about it uh, when using contracts as well. Contract enforcement is very weak. It's strengthening, but it is very weak. Um, And so oftentimes contracts will be stipulated or or moved from uh, governing law to either England, uh, uh, London and Wales, um, England and Wales, or uh, even the arbitration rules would be offshore as well. So you'll also pick England and Wales um, or you'll pick, uh, say, Mauritius for East Africa is common. Um, and and, and th- that's really important to understand, I think, uh, which a lot of firms may overlook uh, in understanding what, what a local firm would look like. Most firms uh, in East Africa, I would say, are over levered. I think this is, has to do with the fact that you don't have proper CFOs in place and you basically are taking out a whole lot of debt uh, and putting it into the company to work, and this is what commercial banks have been feeding off of, and this is why that market is so strong, and they're making money, uh, which is also why you're not seeing the growth that you'd want to see from a firm perspective uh, because of the high cost of capital and because of the over-leverage, which is really important to understand, uh, which also leads into the fact there's a large misunderstanding of what equity means and uh, working with equity uh, in this in this part of the world when it comes to firms. In general, you do have low margins, uh, but you but you do you can see higher margins in certain industries, healthcare, um, being one example. Uh, labor cost is low uh, typically, but high quality labor is expensive here. Uh, pricing obviously is really sensitive. Uh, people are there is some research around. Uh, Pricing uh, being sensitive as it relates to brand, I I think I would uh, argue a little bit differently. I would say uh, pricing usually drives most behavior of most of the East Africans uh, apart from brand. I I don't see much brand loyalty even though I've seen uh, some folks writing about brand loyalty in in East Africans and Africans in general Uh, but I don't see that on the ground. I think for American corporates, uh, in particular, when, when, when we think about it this way, they typically partner with uh, local entities versus establishing their own offices locally. Uh, you've seen a little bit of a shift towards South Africa in Johannesburg and also in Nairobi. You've seen a little bit of a shift from multinationals uh, setting up office there. But for the most part, uh, they tend to send in folks and partner as opposed to setting up office fully. Um, so that typically is the view of, of how they work. Um, so that gives you a little bit of an overview of what what firms look
0: like here on the ground. John, a little bit earlier, you you talked a little bit about the, the business environment in East Asia and some of the cultural differences that uh, foreign businesses have to have to be on the lookout for. I was wondering if if you could drill down a little bit into what the local regulatory environment looks like, and and perhaps if you can. Um, do that by by presenting a a specific uh, firm's experience, or or perhaps um, what what it, what that experience looks like for for, indus, uh, for for companies in a particular industry or sector.
2: Absolutely, uh, I believe that if, for the most part, um, we're seeing improvements in the regulatory environment, and although most uh, jurisdictions across the region. Are still in favor of um, uh, government and the employee, you don't see much private sector favor in, in these, this part of the world. And so whether we're talking about taxes, uh, we're talking about processes, uh, the bureaucracy working with the private sector, um, policies that would help support the private sector, um, those are still being refined so they're, they're not as strong as they could be. Um, but even though uh, there are investment promotion uh, entities within the government that, that, are, that are trying to get out the word that, that each jurisdiction is a good place to put their money into, there is still a lot of uh, red tape that you have to go through, which is important to understand. Even the World Bank uh, doing business reports will show um, that, you know, starting a business, yes, you know. You can, you can start a business in three days and get it fully registered electronically here in, in, in Uganda, as an example. Uh, but the ensuing things that you need to do to get that business going actually are much more cumbersome and, and, and time-consuming. Uh, in addition to additional licensing, um, the labor, getting offices started, all that takes much longer. And in and, and getting contracts in place, it all takes much longer. Uh, but from from the peer regulatory aspect, um, there are some improvements. And, and a lot of it is going online, electronic, and they're making really big improvements in terms of um, uh, getting businesses up and going uh, uh, quicker and, and more efficiently. I think if we want to look at this maybe from a case study perspective, uh, you know, I, I, I work with uh, clients across different industries. Um, you know, one of those industries we work in is, is healthcare. And as it relates to this local regulatory environment, this healthcare uh, investment that we were working on uh, was a bridge between a foreign uh, company um, and two local shareholders. And the local shareholders' role was purely to provide the real estate and the local lazing with government, um, while the the, the foreign partner's role was purely to, to manage and operate the healthcare facility. And what we found was, is when they came on board uh, and they were building their facility, um, by the time it was ready to go to market and open up its doors, uh, the licensing hadn't yet been uh, approved and that we had already been waiting for close to 14 months. Um, So there was an additional time period that we had to wait, which was an additional 12 months. Uh, So a total of 26 months of waiting Uh, for this company to get started and open its doors. Now, if you look at it from a planning perspective, they ended up using debt to build their facility, um, which was a bad idea uh, because of this. And then as a result of that, they didn't have any extra cash for working capital, which they had to extend past the 12 months. And so what might be considered a very simple licensing issue turned into a very significant uh, operational issue because there's actually very little working capital for this company to to survive and in in the hospital sector and the healthcare sector and you have insurance that's involved uh, you're going to have a lot of creditors uh, I'm sorry you're going to have a lot of um, debtors uh, that are waiting to pay you and and those debtors could take anywhere from six months to 12 months uh, to pay so that cash isn't there and you need to you need to fill that so that's important to understand the same is the case if you would look at a trade as well. So I'm focusing on the healthcare sector, but that's one example that we are working on.
1: As we're trying to help companies establish presence in East Africa and deal with uh, deal with the uh, regulatory hurdles, what resources can these businesses look to when they want to enter the East African market?
2: That's a great question. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we set up shop. We felt there was so much information asymmetry that uh, you, you needed people that could be trustworthy. That um, could look at the market intelligently and be able to respond with um, a fairly fairly unbiased view. Now, having said that, every, everyone's view obviously is biased, um, but there are some other resources that are out there. Um, if you, you if you want to look locally, there are investment authorities in each jurisdiction which have their own view and typically it's it's government oriented, in terms of public sector oriented in that view. Um, but those are the priorities that they're pushing. Um, there are Another way to look at this uh, are other investment funds, because investment funds are already on the ground, in the market, making investments. They know exactly which sectors and industry they're looking at. It's a great place to have a conversation. Uh, Other places, obviously, are folks like us, advisors, who are on the ground. Uh, We feel there are only a few outfits out there that are reliable, um, uh, but they're also good sources of information. Uh, Likewise management consulting firms in in the same breath. Um, the other place is for U.S. in particular uh, is the U.S. Commercial Service, which is run out of the embassies. And the U.S. Commercial Service is a great resource. They, they have what's called a gold key plan, which gives you an overview of what's happening in the market. Uh, so it's a great initial resource to sort of jump in and say what's happening in this particular jurisdiction. And each country has one where the embassy is or the consular is. Um, In addition to that, they work closely with the local American Chambers of Commerce in each jurisdiction, Uh, so Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania each has its own American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I used to sit on the board of one. Uh, They're quite resourceful in in, in knowing who's on the ground and also maneuvering the local environment to get good contacts and resources for. And of course, last but not least, um, you know, the big uh, DFIs, the World Banks, IFC, DFC, which is OPIC and USA merging, um, ADB, uh, the African Development Bank, the East African Community, uh, even Trademark East Africa. All of these are great sources from a policy perspective and from a development perspective. Um, and IFC is great if you're looking at it from a private sector lens where capital is flowing as well as DFC. Those are two great institutions. Um, So
0: those are some of the areas uh, people can look if they want more information. John, this has been a fascinating conversation. As we come to the end of the show, um, we'd like to ask you what you have been reading recently that might be of interest to our listeners. Uh, As much as we'd like for the show itself to to be a, a learning tool, we, we hope that we can offer even more resources uh, for folks who are tuning in to, to learn about um, different parts of the world. So on that note, uh, do you have any recommendations for our listeners?
2: Well, this is great. That's a great way to end the show. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been I've I've I'll share a few things that I've read historically and then kind of share what I'm reading now. Um, I, I've read a lot by Martin Meredith. Uh, he's a South African journalist. Um, born, I believe, of Zimbabwe. And uh, he wrote a book which was originally titled The Fate of Africa and later was renamed to The State of Africa. And it gives a great history from independence, post-independence, all up to now, uh, which is a great view of what's happening uh, historically. Um, I've also been reading uh, a lot. I always read work that's put out, uh, research has been put out by the Brenthurst Foundation, They're based in South Africa, again, um, and they do really great research and are very African and continent-specific. They wrote a fantastic uh, compilation of essays, uh, which was called Africa Beyond Aid. Uh, I looked on the website uh, to see if the book was available, but I don't see it there. So it's actually, if you can find it, uh, it's out there. It's It's a collection of essays, and I read it back in 2009 when it came out. Uh, in his fantastic view in terms of the shift in rhetoric from uh, aid, basically foreign aid as a context of free aid, in the context and then moving that to the private sector, right, from, from public to private and how the private sector can get, get more engaged from a development perspective. Um, and then of late, uh, I've been reading more about management uh, in particular. Uh, I love anything by Gary Hamill. I believe he's up at the London School of Economics. Or he might be at the London School of Business, one of the two. And he wrote a fantastic book called The Future of Management, where he talks about and he correlates uh, basically the way Silicon Valley is working in in, in the tech industry and and how management needs to adapt and how we're still working with these 19th century models and modes of management. And we need to kind of evolve that to a 21st century uh, form of, of, of management. So those are really exciting I think it's interesting as it relates to Africa as well.
0: Thank you, Uh, Jonathan. What about you? Anything you'd like to share?
1: Every couple of years, I like to go back and re-listen to The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, This is a, it's a fun book for me, right? But it's also a very kind of deep emotional book. Uh, It's it's really my favorite book of, of all time. And that's no surprise since I was a literature major in college. Um, but uh, the things that Edmund Dantes goes through, right where he has everything he thinks he needs and then he gets essentially uh, captured, cast into a prison and, and has to spend years there rebuilding him himself and his life. And then he gets out and he has to decide how he's going to live his life. and of course, he goes for vengeance first and he ends up realizing that vengeance is not the right way to uh, to be you know to live a human life. And so it's uh, it's a good reminder to me every year it's fun. It's long, uh, but it's so well written and uh, makes me wish I would learn French, but it helps me work on my French accent and English.
0: Well, for me, I'm currently reading one of the books by one of my favorite authors, Paul Theroux. He's a well-known travel writer, and I'm reading Ghost Train to the Eastern Star. Yeah, this book is really about his experiences reliving uh, some of the travels he had made. Um, when he wrote a book you know, many, many years ago, um, and one of the reasons why, why I picked it up is because there's a, a lot of the action takes, takes place in Southeast Asia, and we're going to be, uh, talking about Southeast Asia pretty soon. And I know that that's a part of the world that, that interests, uh, you as well, John. So, um, so that's my, my recommendation as well as pretty much anything that, uh, through has, has written. So we'll be sure to include links uh, on our blog to as many of these publications as as possible so that our listeners can take a look if they're interested. On that note, thank you so much for being on our podcast.
2: Fred and Jonathan, I really appreciate it and look forward to more conversations. We hope you enjoyed today's
1: podcast. We look forward to connecting with you on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else you want to find us. Until next week. (laughs) we <laughs>